Hi there, this is Jeff Edgers. Fifty years ago, the Rolling Stones headlined a free concert that ended in chaos, violence, and death. It was called Altamont. I spent the last eight months reporting on it to try to understand what it meant and why everything went so wrong. I talked to everybody I could, from Keith Richards to the guy who built the three-foot stage. You can listen to the story now on the All Told Podcast. Get it at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. An incredibly busy week on Capitol Hill wraps up. Over the course of three days, we saw several public impeachment inquiry hearings, many witnesses, and a whole bunch of exchanges between government officials and lawmakers. So many moments, in fact, that they're not exactly easy to keep track of. Whether you've been paying attention all week and want insight into exactly what you saw, or whether you've tuned it all out and you're ready to find out what you missed, we're here for you. This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency and what happens when branches of government collide. I'm Allison Michaels. To recap, who sat in front of the panel of lawmakers on the Hill this week, we heard from Pence aide Jennifer Williams. I've had the privilege of working as a Foreign Service officer for nearly 14 years. National Security Council Europe expert Alexander Vindman. Since 2008, I have been a foreign area officer specializing in European and Eurasian political military affairs. I served in the United States embassies in Kiev, Ukraine, and Moscow, Russia. Special envoy to Ukraine, Kurt Volker. My last three positions before leaving the senior foreign service in 2009 were as director for NATO and West European affairs at the National Security Council, principal deputy assistant secretary of state for European affairs at the State Department, and finally, as U.S. ambassador to NATO. Former National Security Council Russia expert Timothy Morrison. Ranking Member Nunez and members of the committee, I appear before you today under subpoena to answer your questions about my time as Senior Director for European Affairs at the White House and the National Security Council. European Union Ambassador Gordon Sondland. The highest honor in my public life came when President Trump asked me to serve as the United States Ambassador to the European Union. Pentagon official for Ukraine and Russia, Laura Cooper. Inspired by working with the U.S. military on a Department of Defense rotational assignment, I decided to accept a civil service position in the policy organization of the Office of the Secretary of Defense in January 2001, where I have remained for the past 18 years. State Department official David Hale. I've been undersecretary since August of 2018, a foreign service officer for over 35 years, an ambassador three times, serving both Republican and Democratic administrations proudly. And uh, I'm here in response to your subpoena to answer the questions of the committee. And in a final hearing Thursday, National Security Council Russia advisor Fiona Hill. I'm an American by choice, having become a citizen in 2002. And David Holmes, a senior staffer at the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine. By way of background, I have spent my entire professional career as a foreign service officer. I asked my colleague, national security reporter Devlin Barrett, who's been covering this closely, to break down key moments from these testimonies. But first, I started by asking him about his sense of the week overall. Well, I think one witness in particular tied a lot of things together, and that was Ambassador Gordon Sondland. And I think Sondland's main point was everyone knew what was going on. This wasn't a big secret. The efforts to get Ukraine to announce an investigation of Joe Biden were very well understood by everyone who talked about it and had these meetings. And I think in a lot of ways, Sondland's testimony tied a lot of different pieces of the story together. And it's not a good picture for the president. 
But at the same time, Republicans don't seem to be swayed at all into, you know, breaking with him. Part of what you're seeing emerge through this whole process, especially this week in particular, is Democrats bring out witnesses who talk about facts and Republicans fighting those facts with theories. And that has, I think, not worked super well from a, from a legal and lawyerly point of view. But politically is a different question. Right. This isn't a court. All right. I'm going to walk through key moments from the testimonies, the moments that have really risen at the end of this week. So let's start with the testimony of Lieutenant Colonel Vindman. One thing that repeatedly came up during his testimony was this pressure from Republicans on Vindman to reveal the identity of the whistleblower. Let's listen to an exchange between Vindman and the Republican ranking member, Devin Nunes. Mr. Vindman, you testified in your deposition that you did not know the whistleblower. Uh, ranking member, it's uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, please. Uh, Le- Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, you testified in the deposition that you did not know the, who the whistleblower was. Or is. I do not know who the whistleblower is. That is. Well, how is it possible for you to name these people and then out the whistleblower? Per the advice of my counsel, I've I've been advised not to answer specific questions about members of the intelligence community. So why press Vindman on this? What's the known relationship between Vindman and the whistleblower? Well, there is no known relationship between those two people. And part of the game in that particular exchange is all Vindman said was, I talked to someone in the intelligence community about what the president had said and done. So Nunes is trying to make the leap that that person right. might Nunes be the whistleblower. Right. Nunes is suggesting that that's the whistleblower, but we don't actually know if that's true or not. And part of the Democrats' point and Vindman's lawyer's point is, you know, we shouldn't be throwing out names here, playing, playing sort of a public guessing game about what the name is. Part of what has happened throughout this process is that Republicans have argued essentially a cover-up and conspiracy among Democrats to sort of frame the president and create the narrative of some sort of presidential misconduct. Look, I think what Nunes is trying to do is he's trying to change the subject. What he does over and over in this hearing is try to sort of turn the whole conversation on its head, not about what the president did, but about what the Ukrainians and or Democrats did. The one sort of through line to what Nunes has been doing has been has been making that point over and over and over. And yet since Tuesday, we haven't really heard too much more about the whistleblower. Is that an indication that Republicans are relenting on hopes of hearing from the whistleblower directly or, or has the request lost its sense of urgency? Well, I think it's two things. I think first, the chairman of the committee, Adam Schiff, has really gone out of his way to shut down any Republicans' attempts to even start a conversation about the whistleblower. And two... You know, so much of the Republican argument leading into these hearings was about this is these are just hearsay accusations. The whistle and the whistleblower's own telling are, are largely hearsay accounts of things because the whistleblower wasn't on the phone call, wasn't a direct participant in a lot of these key conversations. But all of these witnesses that are being rolled out here to to varying degrees are firsthand witnesses. So the argument about hearsay and the argument about secondhand accounts becomes less and less meaningful the more you have people like Gordon Sondland testifying and people like Fiona Hill testifying. And so the whistleblower just becomes less important and less meaningful for that kind of argument. 
The whistleblower is one theme that sort of emerged early in the week. Another theme that emerged this week was the idea that some key people, according to their testimonies, they did not conclude at the time that the suggestion of an investigation into Burisma may have also meant an investigation into the Bidens. Former Special Envoy to Ukraine Kurt Volker addressed that specifically in his testimony on Tuesday. Let's listen to that. In hindsight, I now understand that others saw the idea of investigating possible corruption involving the Ukrainian company Burisma as equivalent to investigating former President, Vice President Biden. I saw them as very different, the former being appropriate and unremarkable, the latter being unacceptable. In retrospect, I should have seen that connection differently, and had I done so, I would have raised my own objections. This seems significant, Volker saying that a particular condition like this would be objectionable? Yes, and there's two ways to think about that. One, Volker's not the only one making that argument. You saw Sondland try to make that argument at different points. In his testimony and a few other witnesses have tried to make that point that in their minds, Burisma didn't automatically mean the Bidens. To be honest, that is a hard argument for me to process because, one, I don't think American officials have any other reference point to Burisma than the Bidens, particularly Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, being on the board of it. And two, there were number of published stories in the spring of this year that very explicitly made the connection between Burisma and the Bidens and included multiple quotes from Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer, talking not about Burisma, talking about the Bidens. So to the degree that officials say that, I think the obvious question becomes, are you saying you were not aware of what Rudy Giuliani was saying? Are you saying you never read any of these stories about this subject that you were working on? I think for some of these folks, it raises the question of are they are they trying to create this distinction to cover their own end of these conversations, to make their own conduct seem less shady? All right. Let's move on then to what might be considered the biggest testimony of the week from EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland, which – at first seemed to me like it was packed with these major revelations, but as I continued to watch, it seemed perhaps less so. So let's listen to a clip from his opening statement. I know that members of this committee frequently frame these complicated issues in the form of a simple question. Was there a quid pro quo? As I testified previously, with regard to the requested White House call and the White House meeting, the answer is yes. That seems pretty clear, right? The man Mm -hmm. very close to the center of these conversations asserts that there was, in fact, a quid pro quo. Right. What's the specific quid pro quo that he is outlining here? So he is outlining a pretty basic one, which is that the president wanted to make clear and did make clear to the Ukrainians that if the new Ukrainian president Zelensky wanted a meeting at the White House with Trump, he was going to have to announce a Ukraine investigation of the Bidens. And they even had you know, a, an outlet for it. They thought they would do it on CNN. I think what's, what's interesting about Sondland's... Sondland does a lot of things in his testimony. There's a lot to unpack in Sondland's testimony. I think the main point Sondland is trying to make through all of his testimony is whatever I did, I did with the full knowledge, agreement, and participation of the people in the administration above me, in particular, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, Secretary of Energy... Uh, Rick Perry, and the president. That seems to be Sondland's major purpose in his testimony to make clear that he was not freelancing anything in his mind. He wasn't going beyond the parameters of what anyone had laid out for him or assigned him to do. He was doing exactly what he was asked to do and the way he was asked to do it. Now, Sondland's testimony is also a little odd because he insists no one raised any concerns at any time about any of this, 
which is not the story that others lower in the chain of command tell. That's not the story that Fiona Hill tells. That's not the story that Colonel Vindman tells. But I think Sondland's testimony is so important in my mind because he basically puts it on the table that, yes, there was a quid pro quo and everyone knew what we were doing. Does he provide evidence that, quote, everyone knew what we were doing? He mostly, well, I think there's a couple of emails with Secretary Pompeo where they talk about these things and he buttresses those emails by saying, when I wrote, you know, the deliverable and when I used these phrases, the secretary knew that I meant X, Y, and Z because we had had that discussion prior to that email. Now, Republicans argue, well, but it doesn't say all that in the email. It just says this one or two sentences. And Sondland's response to that is, yes, but we had had prior discussions, so the, the secretary would know all of those things. Okay. So that point on Sondland and, and presumptions comes up again a little bit later on where the lawyer for the Democrats, Daniel Goldman, is digging more into this you understanding of a quid pro quo. Reference the fact that Ukraine needed to do these investigations in order to lift the aid. I, right? I think I referenced, I didn't say that Ukraine had to do the investigations. I think I said that we heard from Mr. Giuliani that that was the case. So that helped inform your presumption, correct? Correct. So it wasn't really a presumption. You heard from Mr. Giuliani. Well, I didn't hear from Mr. Giuliani about the aid. I heard about the Burisma in 2016. And you understood at that point, as we discussed, two plus two equals four, that That's the right. aid was there as well. That was the problem, Mr. Goldman. No one told me directly that the aid was tied to anything. I was presuming it was. Right. Can you explain to me, is, is Sondland here talking about a different quid pro quo than he was talking about in his opening statement? Well, now, so there's there's two things on the table from the American side, and there's one thing on the table from the Ukraine side. That's the way to think of this. The two things on the table from the Ukraine side are they want a meeting at the White House with the president, and they want the aid, obviously, that, that buys them military assistance to fight the Russians. Now, what Sondland is saying is there was definitely a quid pro quo on the meeting. There's no question in his mind that both the president and others had made very clear that you that the president wanted an announcement of an investigation into the Bidens by Ukraine. And in exchange for that, uh, Zelensky would probably get his meeting at the White House with Trump. Sondland came to believe, as the course of these conversations were going on, that it, at some point the aid was also wrapped up in this same deal Although he's very careful to point out, no one explicitly said to me, and now we're going to hold up the $400 million as well. But given what Giuliani had said, given what was happening in the government, he came to believe that those two things were now part of it. And he refers to it a bunch of times as a logjam. In his mind, this problem is becoming harder, not easier to solve, because instead of trying to solve the meeting deal, he now finds himself in a situation where, as far as he can tell, he's trying to solve a meeting and $400 million deal. And it's not working in his mind, uh, and it's not happening. So Trump hears some of Sondland's testimony, and he actually weighs into reporters in front of his helicopters on the day of Sondland's testimony, reading from some handwritten notes in black marker in all caps. Here's what Trump said in response to Sondland's testimony. I say to the ambassador in response, I want nothing. I want nothing. I want no quid pro quo. Tell Zelensky, President Zelensky to do the right thing. So here's my answer. I want nothing. I want nothing. 
I want no quid pro quo. Tell Zelensky to do the right thing. Then he says, this is the final word from the president of the United States. Can you explain Trump's core argument here? What was he hoping to achieve with this statement to the press? So this is a really interesting part, and this is where sort of the the legal and the court perspective, I think, helps understand what's going on in this moment and what Trump's trying to do. What Trump is describing is actually Sondland quoting the president in his testimony. So if you have to take, take two steps back and say, OK, what happens is in early September, right as this story is coming out, right as the knowledge that there is some issue that is very fraught and has a whistleblower involved and is creating all sorts of tumult inside the national security community, Sondland calls the president and Sondland is frustrated, as I mentioned, about the logjam and he feels like this thing is going south and becoming a problem. And now there may be an additional problem of word may be getting out that there has been this weird back and forth uh, about U.S presidential demands for something from Ukraine. And in that phone call, according to Sondland, the president says, there is no quid pro quo. I don't want anything. Just tell him to do the right thing. Just tell the Ukraine president to do the right thing. But you have to remember that phone call comes as this thing is becoming known to the public. So I think there's a way to view that phone call as, well, yeah, now that the gig is up, people might just be saying, hey, hey, actually, no, I never did that. Forget it. Everyone walk away. Just everyone walk away. Trump is using that phone call to argue that that was his intent all along, that that was his intent not just in September, but in August and in July when he has the phone call where he says, I want you to do a favor for me, though. Mm-hmm. Trump is now trying to argue that, that that phone call in September when he says, I don't want anything, now applies to the entire arc of this story. And I think there's a fair reason to be skeptical given that we already know what he said to Ukraine in the phone call on July 25th. Okay, so that's where we are sort of midday on Wednesday. And there's still a lot more of this, uh, (laughs) which is kind of unbelievable. After all of this late in the day, others testified on Wednesday, including Laura Cooper, a Pentagon official. She revealed something key about the withheld Ukraine aid. Let's listen to that clip. My staff also advised me in the last few days of the following additional facts that may be relevant to this inquiry. Again, my staff does not recall informing me about them, and I do not recall being made aware of this. On July 3rd at 4.23 p.m., they received an email from the State Department stating that they had heard that the CN is currently being blocked by OMB. This apparently refers to the congressional notification state would send for Ukraine FMF. I have no further information on this. On July 25th, a member of my staff got a question from a Ukraine embassy contact asking what was going on with Ukraine security assistance. That's a lot of acronyms. What is Cooper saying here, that Ukraine did, in fact, know that the aid was being withheld? It's like a rap song. you got to unpack it a little bit. (laughs) So what she's saying is that OMB, which is the Office of Management and Budget, has suddenly seems to have gummed up the works on the aid going to Ukraine. And it's it's a little murky, right? Like what she describes is not a very clear-cut... OMB says the money's not going out because X. It's just, wait, the people who are supposed to send the paperwork to make this happen haven't sent the paperwork. The Ukrainians seem to be a little confused and concerned as to what the holdup is. And it doesn't seem to become, you know, a major top level issue for her at that moment. But it suddenly takes on immense significance later because that's the time of the president's phone call with 
Zelensky. And so if the Ukrainians are suddenly worried about their aid, the same day that, you know, frankly, in the bowels of the Defense Department, someone's like, hey, these this money doesn't seem to be going out all of a sudden. Is there something wrong here? What's up? It becomes much more alarming, let's say, in terms of what was the actual intent of OMB in holding this up? And the other thing you have to keep in mind in all this process is, remember, the White House chief of staff said not too long ago in a live television broadcast, sure, there was a quid pro quo. Sure, we hung, we, you know, that's how this world works. Get over it. One of the underlying questions that is still a little murky because there are White House witnesses that they, so far, the administration has not let come to the Hill to explain what they knew and when. It's still not entirely clear exactly what OMB did and why and who who issued those orders. Is this particular piece of information that Cooper revealed, was it previously unknown to the panel? It's important in this sense. It was unknown to the panel and it was unknown generally publicly because it was generally thought up until she said that, that the Ukrainians didn't have any suspicion that the aid was being held up until later in August. But if there is that concern exists among the Ukrainians in late July or early August, that kind of changes your understanding of of the dynamic going on through all these conversations and all these meetings. It makes it, frankly, a little more suspicious. But again, we really don't have a good, and a lot of the witnesses speak to this. Sondland's testimony speaks to this. A bunch of these folks' testimony speaks to this. We really don't have a good understanding of of how the money stopped moving and why. Another way you could think about it is this way. When people inside the bureaucracy and these agencies are asking questions about why the money's not moving, they're not really getting any answers. When members of Congress start asking questions about why the money's not moving, all of a sudden the money just moves. And that's also the time when you learn about things like the whistleblower and these other things, and then suddenly just whatever whatever was happening stops happening. Mm-hmm. Has Cooper's testimony changed the Republican argument around Ukraine's knowledge of the aid we- being withheld? I don't think it's changed the argument. I think it weakens the argument. But Cooper's not really that definitive on this point. It certainly suggests that the Ukrainians had some understanding that there was some kind of problem with the money well before we had previously thought. But I wouldn't call that definitive because just because Cooper herself is not quite sure exactly what this traffic at the time meant. All right. Let's move on to Thursday, focusing on the testimony of former White House advisor on Russia, Fiona Hill. She made a really striking point at the beginning of of her hearing about Russian efforts to delegitimize our U.S. presidency. In her opening statement, she said, Based on questions and statements I've heard, some of you on this committee appear to believe that Russia and its security services did not conduct a campaign against our country and that perhaps, somehow, for some reason, Ukraine did. This is a fictional narrative that has been perpetrated and propagated by the Russian security services themselves. The unfortunate truth is that Russia was the foreign power that systematically attacked our democratic institutions in 2016. This is the public conclusion of our intelligence agencies confirmed in bipartisan congressional reports. It is beyond dispute, even if some of the underlying details must remain classified. So correct me if I'm overstating this, but this sounds to me like Trump's former advisor on Russia saying that Trump's refusal to accept Moscow's intervention in the 2016 election is wrong. Yes. And it's a really interesting point because we have gone through a bunch of hearings now where the Republican counter argument to a lot of this has become, isn't there something worth investigating in the Ukrainian election tampering? Isn't there something to investigate 
in the Bidens. And Fiona Hill's statement is basically, look, you have a set of facts, which we know are, are things we know are true. And, and that you, that's being fought with a set of theories, which we know aren't true, and they are being propagated by the Russians. So to the degree that U.S. lawmakers are embracing these theories we know aren't true, pushed by the Russians, we are doing harm to our country and our government by doing that. And Fiona Hill's point is, look, this is exactly what Russia wants people to think. And they want people to think that because it's not true. Mm-hmm. And because it might further divide our country. Right. All right. So let's sort of wrap this up. Last week, we had three witnesses testify publicly. This week, we had nine. Were there notable differences between this week and last week in terms of how well this process works for information gathering when you pack it all together? I think there were notable differences in that they filled in a lot more blanks mm-hmm. in in the series sequence of events here this week than they did last week. Last week felt like a lot of the testimony was stuff we had sort of understood, but maybe a little more thoroughly described. This week felt different to me in the sense that we now have a very clear understanding of of what the allegations are and what happened according to the people who were there. One way that I tend to think about this now is when that phone call transcript came out and the president says, I'd like you to do a favor for me. And his favor is, can you investigate the Bidens? A lot of the Republican argument became, well, maybe he meant something different. Maybe there was something else going on. There's a lot of things you don't know. There's a lot of things that we don't understand. You know, you can't assume that it that it is what it looks like. And I think so much of what we saw this week in the testimony is that, yeah, that is exactly what it what, what it was. We know what the facts are now. Now, politically, we can have a very intense debate about what should be done about those facts, whether the facts rise to the level of impeachment or not. But I think this week went a long way towards establishing, yes, this is what happened. These are the people who observed it and participated in it in real time. And now, you know, lawmakers are going to have to decide what they want to do about it. On that point, as far as we know, is the public hearings phase of this inquiry over? I don't assume it's over. So there's a couple really big outstanding questions, and, and they involve a lawsuit over whether White House officials can be forced to testify. And the key one there of interest would be John Bolton, the former national security advisor. Fiona Hill's testimony makes very clear that Bolton was very unhappy and upset with what was happening and referred to what Giuliani was doing on the president's behalf as a drug deal. It would be amazing to get Bolton's version of these events, and we might still get Bolton's version of these events, but he's been very cagey about whether he plans to come forward and speak. But as of now, do we know what's on the schedule for next week for Thanksgiving? Well, next week is Thanksgiving week. So I think the lawmakers are all, you know, going home and eating turkey. I think it'll be an interesting question what happens the week after Thanksgiving. And there's one other potential confrontation to get ready for after Thanksgiving. And that's we expect the Justice Department's inspector general report to come out about the FBI investigation into the Trump campaign and Russian election interference. And that will give the Republicans an opportunity to call their own witnesses in their own setting and sort of hammer, for lack of a better term, the deep state and the folks that they don't like who went after President Trump two two or three years ago. And that happens outside of the impeachment inquiry. That's outside of the impeachment inquiry. But there is, at least at this point, a theoretical possibility that we could end up with dueling hearings at some point. 
the Republicans in the Senate holding hearings on the inspector general's findings regarding the FBI and the Democrats in the House holding hearings with other witnesses related to the impeachment question. More reports, more hearings. I guess listeners will have to stay tuned to hear more. Devlin, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? If you want to get more news about the impeachment inquiry, you can now subscribe to a new podcast feed from The Washington Post. All of our audio updates on the inquiry in one place, including the latest from Can He Do That? Post reports and The Daily 202's Big Idea, updated whenever news happens. Subscribe at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the beguiling Carol Alderman, with production help this week from Ariel Plotnick, design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon.